please do go ahead and open in your Bibles to Psalm 6. If you're using one of the Bibles we've given you or you got off the back table, this is on page 429 and 430. Weakness is not a quality that we like in our leaders. We want strong leaders, confident leaders. If our country was facing some crisis and the president stood up and said, the odds are insurmountable, the prognosis is grim, I'm totally out of ideas and terrified, and let's just see what happens. If we were faced with a leader like that, the, you know, the stock market would tank, we'd all set our hair on fire. How can we move forward with a leader who's so weak and clueless? Sometimes we say that we want a leader who's got a good sense of humor or shows some sort of human touch, but we don't like it when they're weak. And this isn't unique to our culture. For generations and throughout history, kings have always tried to project strength. Whatever they may have been like in private, they, they use the formalities of the court, the rituals of state, in order to present themselves as even otherworldly or especially powerful. So again, we, we saw this with the king of, of Persia, right? Ahasuerus had all these courtly rituals that were meant to make him seem mysterious and inapproachable as other than everybody else. In medieval England, the royal family was so set apart and powerful that it was treasonous even to compass or imagine their deaths. To imagine the death of the royal family was to commit high treason. And if to speak of it, you could be prosecuted for such things. So weakness was not a permissible royal description. It could not be thought of as such a subject to death. This makes the psalm that we're going to look at this morning all the more remarkable. Because it's a a psalm from Israel's king, King David. And he was indeed a mighty king, a mighty monarch. He was a divinely appointed monarch. He enjoyed special favor and protection from the maker of the universe. In a sense, we might say that there has never been a king on earth more powerful than David. Because the Lord fought for him. The Lord miraculously preserved his life again and again. Psalm 2 is a great royal psalm that calls the kings of the earth to kiss the sun. And in that sense, it's a double meaning of the the sun as in the Davidic king, but also pointing to Jesus. But all the kings of the earth are, are told to fear God's king. That's what the the Israelite king was to be like. He was supposed to be feared among the nations. So we might expect David to participate in the the ancient royal tradition of projecting power, of allowing no apparent chink in his armor, to want to seem invulnerable. But that's not what he does. King David does not hide his weaknesses. The prayers we've been studying the last few weeks are full of confessions of David's distress, even his shame and his confusion. And the prayer that we've come to today outdoes them all. Here in Psalm 6, David is at his weakest, his most desperate. He writes about having a a sense of impending death. 
he admits to uncontrollable weeping. Who among us would want to have such things put down in paper and recorded for all history? We can imagine David's political advisors saying, you know, yes, your majesty, this was really great, but let's just, you know, put this in the drawer. Maybe, maybe it just gets lost in the archives. This is not a good look for a king. It seems even especially scandalous for a king like David, known for his piety, right? The man after God's own heart. Is it appropriate for him to express the fears and doubts he has in Psalm 6? And can it be good news for a people to have such a king? If he's so distraught, what does that mean for them? Well, in the first seven verses of this psalm, he displays his weakness. But then in the last three verses, we'll see a drastic change. Without warning or explanation, David transforms from a weeping man to a victorious king. He goes from feeling certain about death approaching and about his own shame to being sure that his enemies are going to be turned back and put to shame. He speaks to them boldly. Depart from me, you workers of evil. What do God's people make of a man like this, of a king like this? We're not here just to spy out David's vulnerability. That would be a a weird thing to find in the Bible. So we we trust this psalm is here to lead us in worship. How are we led in worship? By seeing David's weakness and then his surprising turnaround. These questions will draw us along this morning. What does it mean? What, What good does it do for us to know this sorrowful king, this sorrowful man? And what does it mean that he all of a sudden becomes the victorious king? So we'll use those two headings to guide our time. The sorrowful man and the victorious king. First, let's look at the sorrowful man and read the first seven verses of this psalm. Again, you can find this on page 449. Psalm 6. To the choir master... With stringed instruments, according to the Shemineth, a psalm of David. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? I am weary with moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away with grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. This is God's word. Thank you, God. The opening lines of this psalm are an important clue for the reason for David's sorrow. He says, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. We get a sense of what's on David's mind, what's front and center in terms of his relationship to the Lord. His words here are simultaneously a a confession of guilt and also a request of For grace. 
he believes he deserves some rebuke from God, some correction. But he's asking the Lord for this rebuke and correction not to be accompanied by wrath and anger. In other words, David's admitting, Lord, you have the right to pour out your wrath on me and to make an end of me. And yet he's also praying, Lord, please don't do that. Rebuke me, yes, but not in anger. Discipline me, but not in wrath. We're meant to read this whole, these whole seven verses in light of David's view of God's wrath. David believes that he may have finally exhausted God's grace. Finally send his way into being the subject of final righteous punishment from God. One way we can see this is that when David asked for mercy, it's, it's a naked plea for mercy. I mean, David doesn't say, deliver me because I'm righteous. He does that elsewhere in the Psalms. He doesn't say, deliver me because I, I woke up this morning and offered you a sacrifice. Right? He said that in Psalm number five, right? It's a naked plea for grace. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I'm languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul is greatly troubled. The basis David offers for his plea is his own weakness. Be gracious because I'm weak. I can't withstand your judgment. By the end of verse 3, David's run out of words. We get a, a fragment, almost a nonsense prayer. But you, O Lord, how long? The introduction of this prayer, these first three verses, presents us with a man who's in the depths of despair, facing down the wrath of God, left speechless. Will God's anger against him burn forever? If we're right about the context of this psalm, that this psalm is one of this long series that begins in Psalm number three and goes through Psalm six, where David's on the run from Absalom, then this is the climax of David wrestling with his own responsibility for how his kingdom and his household have ended up. Throughout the psalm, we've noted that, that there's a a tension. David understands himself to be a sufferer, persecuted unjustly by men like Absalom, but also questioning, maybe I deserve what I'm getting. This is God's hand of discipline against me because of my, my failure to oversee my household, my failure to get justice for Tamar, my, my failure to, to punish Absalom when, I, when he took his brother's life, my failure to punish Amnon when he assaulted his sister. All of these failures have mounted up and David is wondering, again, perhaps this is it. So he asked, how long? How long will this go on? Will it go on until I'm finished? From this dark beginning, David's reflections turn even darker. His eyes turn to the prospect of death. Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? 
When David meditates on death here, he's not looking at death the way that God's people or Christians normally do. So, for example, later in the Psalms, in Psalm 116.15, the psalmist says, Precious in the eyes of the Lord is the death of his saints. We know the Apostle Paul saw that to depart from this life and to, be, to die was to be with God was a good thing in a sense. It was desirable even that he would be with God in death. That's how he looked at death. But when David looks at death here, he says, well, the, my death will be the end of my praising of you. No more remembrance of you in death for me. And that's because of God's wrath looming large in his mind. David sees death and Sheol here in light of his fears about God's wrath. In essence, this is a plea for the Lord to save David from hell. Don't send me to hell. Don't send me to the place where I won't remember you anymore. Don't pour out your wrath upon me. He's praying. This is the depth of David's distress. His foes are against him. Suffering in such a way that he's weeping uncontrollably. Wondering, am I about to be utterly cut off? If you're you're thinking, well, how could David think this? Well, David had seen this very thing happen to King Saul. (coughs) King Saul had had acted like all the other kings of the nations, right? He had not followed the Lord, he had not obeyed the Lord, and the kingdom was taken from him. And Saul is finally killed by his enemies. David is here wondering, am am I headed toward the same end? Have Have I so gone away from the Lord that I deserve the same thing that Saul received? His household's in disarray. His kingdom's in disarray. His own son is mounting this coup against him. David has fled from the land all the way across the Jordan. David is in exile, literally, geographically. He's not in the holy city anymore. And he's as close as he can be to convinced that he's in actual spiritual exile from God. An exile from God's forgiveness. (coughs) Overwhelmed with grief. Over his sin. David's enemies, his foes, are like the, the hounds of hell, nipping at David's hills, heels, pulling him towards the abyss. And he has a sense that in some way he deserves the wrath of God. He deserves all that his enemies want to do to him and worse. He says his eyes waste away because of grief. It's a, a metaphor of a, the light of life is dimming. David's fading fast. We might wonder, well, maybe David's just gone too far. This is just kind of overly dramatic. He's maybe even guilty of sin here, of doubting God's grace. If we found David in such a state, we, we'd want to give him some encouragement, perhaps, some, some gospel truth, and, and, and maybe that's appropriate. I mean, I hope if, we, if you found me like this, you'd want to encourage me. But it's worth stopping to ask Is David actually right to grieve like this? Are we willing to consider that David's understanding of his sin is is correct? Not not that he's actually cut off, but that this is what it deserves. He's right to feel the weight of his sin. 
that sin deserves God's wrath. We should ask, do I take my sin too lightly? Our selfishness, our pride, our sinful anger, our failure to act in the face of evil, our lust, our greed, our discontentment. Do we have a sense of how offensive these things are to God? Do we hate them? Do we grieve over them? This grief shouldn't be performative. It's not for anyone else to see. But our hearts should be pierced by sin. We want and need a a right weighing of sin that we don't take it lightly. When we take our sin lightly, we have a diminished view of God's grace. Do you see the gravity of your sin? If you're here and you're not a Christian yet, you haven't made a profession of faith, you haven't understood your sin, I wonder what you think of David's prayer. I mean, it's tempting to think, again, that he's making a big deal over nothing. Maybe you're kind of being reaffirmed in your view of religious folks, that they're just kind of obsessed about minutiae. But I'm guessing that there is some sin that you do get really concerned about. And it's the sin that others do against you, like when you're treated wrong, correct? When someone yells about you or lies about you or cheats you, it's a big deal. It's a big deal when someone sins against us. Do you have any sense of what it means when you sin against others? What do you do with that? And what do you think about your sin if it's against God? Perfectly holy God, a good God. David here is God's favored king, yet he's wrecked with grief over his sin. When he measures himself against his perfectly good God, he, he knows he cannot stand. He knows he deserves to be punished by God forever. Do you think you can stand? It may seem like a badge of honor not to care too much about your sin. But look at David's example in the psalm. Do you think you or King David has a more accurate estimation of sin's evil? In the face of sin, David's brought low. As low as any living human being can go. Have you been brought low? David is, first of all, in this psalm, a sorrowful man. With all that in mind, verses 8 through 10 are truly shocking and abrupt. A switch seems to have turned on in David's mind and heart. Let's read there, verses 8 through 10. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. For the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. How do we account for this? How does David know that the Lord has heard his plea and accepted him? There's a a great gulf between verse 7 and verse 8. A silence there that we wonder about. But there is a hint 
And the hint has to do with what I would call the kingly tone of these last three verses. So verses 1 through 7, David speaks as a, a sinful man facing a righteous judge. He speaks as one who in some sense deserves the attacks of his enemies that they're bringing against him. He is the sorrowful man, but now he turns and speaks as the victorious king. It's as if he remembers that that's who he is. It's as if between verse 7 and verse 8, he remembers that God made a covenant with him, a a special set of promises as king. And one of those promises is is 2 Samuel 7, 11. I will give you rest from all your enemies. So the, the covenant that God made with David as king included these special promises for deliverance from the enemies that that are so painful in David's life right now. They included special promises for God to treat David the way a father treats a son, to discipline him, for the pain and sorrow of life to be part of God's plan to shape him as a more faithful worshiper of God. And so suddenly David remembers Essentially, that he's God's son. He remembers that he's God's king. And he's God's victorious king. The grace and salvation that he prayed for, they really are his because of his unique status. Because God has made him king. The suffering he's been going through was not final wrathful judgment, but it's all part of God's fatherly discipline. David remembers the covenant. He remembers his special status. And because of that, he knows God has heard my weeping. That's the source of his confidence. The evidence here is his kingly orders to his enemies, his kingly confidence that they will be turned to shame. In the beginning of the psalm, David says that he is greatly troubled. His own soul, his life is greatly troubled. At the end of the psalm, he's confident. Verse 10, all my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They are the ones facing God's wrath. He has been delivered. He knows it. Well, this psalm still leaves us with the question, what does this do for God's people? You know, great for David. He's got this going for him. But what about us? Well, put yourself back in the mindset of an ancient Israelite using this psalm in worship. Do we know the ancient Israelites ever sinned? (laughs) Yes, grievously. Do we know that they experienced any kind of exile? Yes. Desperate exile. The city of Jerusalem itself was overrun and the temple destroyed. See, the Israelites were being given a pattern here in in their sorrowful king for their own sorrow, for their own looking their sin in the face and grappling with the righteous wrath of God against them. They were being given a, a pattern to follow that they should not look away from their sin, but they should look it full in the face and know what it deserved. They should understand that they were indeed in some sense experiencing the wrath of God that was meant to lead them to repentance. 
So they were meant to follow their king, their their man of sorrows, into a place of humility, but then to follow him into a place of confidence in God's promises. Because of God's covenant love for them, they could have faith that God would not forsake them, that he would indeed save them, that he would once again lead them out of exile and into his glorious and blessed presence. They were meant to follow David's pattern of humiliation and exaltation. It's clear, I think, for Israel as an old covenant people that that David could serve as this kind of pattern for them and give them hope. As God treated our father David, our king, so he will treat us. But what does that do for us today? We're not Old Testament Israelites, right? We're not, we're not there in exile in Babylon awaiting redemption. We don't have the, the promise to Abraham as an ethnic people. But this is, in some ways, what the New Testament is all about. This is why it's so significant that when Jesus comes, he comes as a son of David. It's so significant that when God acts to save, he takes on flesh. The Son of God takes on flesh and becomes a man. And doesn't he become for us a man of sorrows? When we think about David, the sorrowful man, it's really pointing us to Jesus, the sorrowful man. Think about the things that David was afraid of. He was afraid of the wrath of God. He was afraid of being sent to Sheol In God's wrath. Sheol is the Old Testament word for the realm of the dead. That's what David fears. Of being cut off from God's blessed presence. Because of God's wrath. He's afraid of his enemies. His foes, he said. That that because of his foes, the light is fading. Right? What did Christ endure? Didn't Jesus endure all of these exact things that David so feared? David is afraid of his enemies, and yet Jesus hands himself over to evil men, right? David is afraid of the wrath of God, and Jesus goes to the cross willingly to bear the wrath of God. David's afraid of the grave, but Jesus goes to the grave not for his own sins, but bearing the weight of sins. The glorious Son of God became a sorrowful man. Isaiah calls him that, the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. That's who Jesus is for us. God laid his righteous, wrathful punishment upon Jesus for our sake. And it's in this way, by enduring that all that David feared, that Jesus becomes our Savior, that he secures salvation for everybody who trusts in him. I think, in a sense, we catch a glimpse in Psalm 7, or Psalm 6, of the humanity of Jesus, why it's so important that he didn't save as a, a God so far away, but that he, he came near and took on flesh. He became weak for us, subject to death and enduring it. 
He is the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He's the high priest who can sympathize with us in every way without sin. That's who Jesus is for us. But of course, Jesus is not merely the man of sorrows, is he? He's also the victorious king. The exalted king, raised from the dead, having conquered all his enemies. As a matter of fact, Jesus quotes Psalm 6, verse 8. Did you notice that, that verbiage from Psalm 6, 8? Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. So in the book of Matthew and the book of James, Jesus takes these words into his own mouth. And this is how he's going to pronounce a judgment on some who, who thought they knew Jesus. But at the end of time, they will find that they didn't. And he will say as the victorious king, depart from me, all you workers of iniquity, all you workers of evil. But the the more important fact for us is David's prophecy, I think, when he says the Lord accepts my prayer, accepts his prayer. Jesus' offering of himself was accepted by God. When we studied the book of Hebrews, that played a central role in the first few verses. We read of Jesus offering himself up as high priest and then being received and sitting down, having made atonement for sins. Jesus is the man of sorrows who offered himself and then was accepted by God. And his resurrection and ascension and sitting down at God's right hand are are all the proofs of his glorious acceptance and reign. He is the victorious king, the one who reigns over all things, the one who can say to his enemies, be turned to shame. Depart from me. But for those who are in him, we can know that we are accepted. It is good news to know that Jesus is your man of sorrows and your victorious king. Because of that good news, we too are accepted. We too can offer ourselves to God. See, because Jesus was accepted, we can endure all the suffering that this life throws at us. Because we do so knowing our hope is secure. One of the issues this passage raises is David's awareness of God's wrath against him. Of David's awareness that he deserves the full weight of his sin. How do we grapple with that? There's a kind of almost a cognitive dissonance. I I believe that God loves me, and yet there's this, this threat of wrath. How can this be? Well, we can only understand this and live in it if we know that the wrath has fully been absorbed by Jesus. And whatever, whatever fatherly displeasure may be wrapped up in our suffering, that it's meant for our good. So you often hear pastors and theologians make a distinction between discipline and punishment. And they'll, they'll say that, that Christians experience discipline from God because the punishment has been poured out on Jesus. And I think that the nub of that truth is is good and true, but it's probably a little bit overwrought. And you'll find this especially if you read anyone like, say, before the 20th century, because they don't recognize the difference between discipline and punishment. If you read John Calvin, he'll talk about how God is, is wrathful against his children and punishing them, 
but it's, it's not proper punishment. That it's for our good. It's chastisement that's meant to refine us. And that's what David ultimately realizes by the end of this psalm. The, this grief of sin that I, I rightly feel and feel is meant to bring me to repentance and hope. So what I'm encouraging us to do, friends, is, is to face our sin. To sit in the grief of it. But then allow that grief to be turned to joy. Not because we are righteous, but because we stand in Christ. And Christ has been accepted. This is an encouragement to keep coming to God. And notice again, David's doing this over and over again. Night and day, night and day. You know, he, he's almost certainly repented of some of these sins before. But the Lord keeps unearthing new understandings of the depth of his sin. And so he brings them again to God. And he says, there's more for you, David. And he brings them to this point of drenching his bed in tears. Friends, don't stop wrestling with your besetting sins. And don't believe that because you're, you're bringing the same sin to the Lord again, that, that there's no hope for you. Keep bringing them to God and know that you're accepted by the work of Jesus Christ. David knew that he was accepted because of God's promises to him. We can know that we're accepted because of God's promises to Jesus. God's promises to us come through Jesus, who has laid down his life and been accepted by God. And so we, we live with God knowing that the ultimate retribution for our sin has been poured out on Jesus and Jesus was able to take it and rise again from the dead. Jesus went down to Sheol and he came out the other side. Jesus had his own Jonah and the whale experience, but he, did, he didn't have to be spat up by the whale, right? He raised himself from the dead and ascended to God's right hand. And so all of these blessings come to us who know the man of sorrows and who know him as our victorious king. We must know the man of sorrows and know him as our victorious king. Do you see how good it is when you know him like this? You know a savior who has been tempted like you, yet without sin. You know one who's gone through death itself and come out the other side. You have an older brother who will hold your hand through the grave. Do you know him? Do you know that he came to bear your grief? Have you cast it on him? Do you know the victorious king? Do you know that he took it to the grave and the grave did not overwhelm him and he conquered it? Do you know that you're accepted? By faith in Christ. Do you know Jesus Christ as your man of sorrows? Do you know him as your victorious king? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are here before you because you came. You took on flesh. 
You endured the cross. You bore our griefs. You died in our place. You nailed our sin to the cross, and we bear it no more. And so we praise you with our whole soul. We trust that on the last day, it will be well with our souls when we see you coming. Whether we are alive or raised from the dead, we will not be terrified at the sight of you, but we will be changed into your likeness. We have this sure and certain hope because you are the man of sorrows and you are the victorious king. We pray for your help to believe this. Amen.